Well, welcome to uh, the second episode of Our Connect Sessions. I'm Paul. I'm here with uh, Amelia and Donna and Ken. Amelia, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing very well. How's your week been? Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, really excited to uh, have just published a piece about the coverage that we did for the Architecture and Neuroscience Academy, or the excuse me, the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture. Um, that was a super, I was really excited to finish that piece that's uh, just published yesterday. And and there are other things going on, my, on in my life other than going for work. But yeah, that was a super big highlight. Uh, yeah, I loved that piece. I thought it really summarized the event that you went to in a r super interesting way. Very fun read. And uh, the the conference sounded like it was, like it had a ton of informative presentations and, and discussions. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you were to just wander in off the street, I, there's no way you would mistake this for an architecture conference. It was a lot of scientific papers being presented to a lot of people dressed in black in the audience who sometimes nodded in <laughs> understanding and sometimes had that glazed look on their face, like, what on earth is being told to me? But it was a really interesting effort to communicate neuroscience to architects and try to get them to understand how this is potentially a boon for them and something really exciting. So the, what I hope to do in the piece was just kind of explain to people how these two fields can really work together. And even though there's so much work to still be done, I think it's super promising. So it's a, I think it's a biannual conference. So 2016, people keep your eyes open. So did you notice much of a difference in the response from architects and scientists? <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so whenever I think of the conference, the first thing I think of is this really ornery architect who was very frustrated by all of the, um, all of the clients he had ever had that second guessed his professional opinion. And he was very vocal throughout the conference and at multiple times raising his hand and requesting like, this is all well and good. All of this research is great. And I'm, I hope that I can actually use this one day, but what can I take away now that I can just hand to clients and make them trust me immediately? What, what science can I show them that they can't argue with? And because apparently they can argue with architectural expertise that can just convince them to sign the documents and like, let me do what I need to do. Um, so I think the architects were really jonesing for just answers and the neuroscientists were more like oh wow this is so fascinating like let's keep scratching at the surface and getting uh, a little bit more information one step at a time but i think their time frame is much more expansive they're working on the more like 10 20 year research ben and the architects are like well i have this project that i really just want answers for now so there was really there's an interesting uh, audience <laughs> mixture there. So a lot of uh, you know where's my app kind of totally from architects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. People want answers right away. Yeah, but it was good. It was a. Um, I'm interested to see how that stuff develops. Definitely, Ken. How have you been? I've been doing well. How you been? I've been I've been well. <laughs> uh, so the weekend's been pretty interesting. I. Uh, Went to uh, an art fair here in St. Paul, um, and uh, I've been busy buying art for uh, nieces and nephews. And then um, I talked with my uh, pastor over the weekend and, and asked her if she would be interested in doing an interview with me uh, regarding the, the Saarinen buildings uh, that our uh, church occupies. 
Christ Church Lutheran. So wow. And what she, was she, what was her response? Her first response was to push me off to one of the other architects in the uh, in the congregation because our church has about a dozen or so design professionals uh, that are members of the church. And I immediately said, no, I'm not really interested in an architect's point of view of the space. I really want to talk about um, not just the architectural issues, but the, the broader issues about how a, how a congregation that's um, typically seen as pretty uh, conservative in, in its values and uh, its design thinking managed to get this foremost modern thinker uh, in architecture to build this wonderful space in the late 1940s. And about how the idea, uh, I was just telling her, you know, I'm interested in how, how religion um, juxtaposed with this modern thinking is kind of changed and how has that affected her and her impressions. So she's really excited by it and um, I'm looking forward to kind of doing that with her. That's great. It's interesting that she immediately thought of directing you to an architect instead of yeah. speaking with her because it's uh, it's so much more refreshing hearing a non-architect's uh, feelings and experiences with architecture. Well, that's what I said to her. I said I was interested. <laughs> it's kind of funny that I use this word, but it's kind of apt in this d- description. Um, hearing a layperson's point of view about about <laughs> architecture and it's <laughs> given that she's a, a pastor um of our church and you know we're a pretty progressive group of people at, at this church so it's interesting to see the very traditional kind of music being played and the very kind of traditional um rituals in a very modern space and those two things don't seem to always kind of sit well together and i'm very fascinated by um um, how that how that strikes her as uh, in this you know in 2014. So, what kind of interview are you thinking? Are you thinking about maybe getting her onto the podcast or something else? I, I would like to submit that for consideration, and and maybe it's something um, you know you would be interested in in um, putting out there as a as a piece. I'm not sure where it's going yet. I want to kind of dig into the history of the church and understand the congregation a little more. Um, the past, uh, obviously, and and try to understand how it how it came to be that this group of people decided that um, Arrow and Aliel uh, were the ones to uh, do these buildings. Well, that's going to be a great conversation. I'm looking forward to that. Donna, how are you? Hello, I'm good. I'm good. I had a um, speaking of Saarinen and churches, both Saarinens and churches. I um, went to a, our monthly AIA meeting was last Thursday night and Alex White, who is, um, I don't exactly know his title, but I will find out for the show notes. He is an architect here in town and he is working, um, with Cummins. Um, Cummins is, uh, which we all know from the famous Columbus architecture. Um, they are the, the, the benefactors of the amazing collection of architecture in Columbus, Indiana, um, including a few churches by both by Saarinen, both Saarinens, I believe. Um, Alex came up and gave a talk to the AIA group um, about uh, the new global headquarters that Cummins is building in Indianapolis on an empty site downtown. And they, it, this was covered on Arconnect. I think I put it in there. It, um, they had shortlisted down to shop, 
uh, Todd Williams, Billy Chen, or Deborah Burke. And then they did decide uh, just about a week and a half ago that Deborah Burke was going to be doing the building. So it's exciting. And there's a lot of buzz in the local community about this, the local architecture community, at least. Um, most people who are not architects that I've seen commenting on blogs and whatnot are saying that Deborah Burke's work looks boring, which, you know, to me means they just aren't sophisticated enough to understand it. Sorry. I know that's really an elitist point of view. I've but noticed that too. I've also noticed that comment from some architects, but um, I mean, I personally think it's a, it's a really exciting decision. I'm sure. I mean, can you talk a little bit about? Well, so this was the thing. Alex White get, was giving this talk to the AIA in which he was going to be talking about what Cummins is doing. And he ended up just teasing us and not showing us anything about what's proposed or what the competition, you know, they, they were paid to each do a proposal. None of that. We didn't get to see any of that. There was one slide he showed that had, I think it was a concept sketch, one by each of the firms, and they were black and white, and they were very light. And he got to the slide and said, oh, sorry, this slide's really too light to look at. And he switched away from it, and that was it. <laughs> I said, Alex, you're killing us. You're killing us. We want to see this work. And um, he just, there was nothing to show. So I basically know, all I could say is that the Todd Williams, Billy Chen sketch was very pale. The shop one was a little darker, and the Deborah Burke had a couple of dark black blobs. So that's my description of what the building's going to be, huh. <laughs> based on what I know so far. So I will keep updating as we learn more, but um, at the moment, they're keeping it pretty pretty tight to the vest. Yeah, please do. <laughs> um, that, it's going to be a it's going to be a good one to follow. Yeah, yeah, it will be, and it's. Um, I mean, it's a really important building. And, and there have been this sort of usual grumblings also in Indianapolis about um, why don't we hire someone local and a bunch of people saying, well, the local architects are all boring anyway. So, uh, you know, it's it's nice at least to just see the conversation of architecture happening in the city. So, yeah, it'll be a it'll be a good, good uh, project, I'm sure. Very cool. Yeah. Amelia, um, I I uh, this on Monday, you were telling me about a urban exploration that you and your husband went on on the weekend. I was thinking uh, that maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. It was really, sounded really cool. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so one thing that I love about living in Los Angeles is that it's just so large that I don't feel like I'll ever be able to know all of it, which means that there's always going to be neighborhoods that are totally foreign to me and I get to visit as if for the first time that I am like a tourist in that new neighborhood. Um, so for a while, I've been talking to my husband, Honest about going to Mount Washington in Northeast Los Angeles, which is not at all an exotic location. It's pretty close to what is known as central LA, but, um, it's about a two square mile neighborhood, uh, just Northeast of downtown, um, that is mostly residential. It's like kind of spiraling around this mountain, hence Mount Washington. Um, and there are no major arterial roads in it because it's too mountainous. So, when they founded the neighborhood in like the early 20th century, there's just these quick switchbacks, pretty steep going up the mountain. And they originally even had one of those funicular uh, carriages or whatever that runs on a rail. It's in the ground like um, they do in downtown Los Angeles in Angel's Flight. That was super popular for all of the gentry of the 20, early 20th century to ride up and down the mountain so they wouldn't have to get their, I don't know, petticoats sweaty or whatever. Um, <laughs> so we explored that neighborhood, um, by foot, which was great. Just like getting, getting off at a train station and walking straight up the hill and just going through, snaking through the neighborhood. Um, and what's especially cool about the area is that there's all of these paper roads, roads that are written into the developers maps and 
kind of appear sometimes on the landscape as like social trails, but they're not really written into the landscape in the way of like a formal map or even on Google satellite, you can't really see a lot of them. But once you're there, they become apparent. So that was really cool, just being able to walk around up there. And once you get to the top, which is a significant peak in <laughs> in that area, you can see all around the city on a clear day. You could see the ocean, maybe. <laughs> it wasn't clear when we went up there. Um, you can definitely see into downtown to the, I guess, southwest that would be, and then also into the um, San Gabriel Mountains. So it's, it's really a beautiful neighborhood. And I know that... Um, I think it's Tim of Tim and Eric lives up there. So there's also some celebrity stuff going on. And it's just a really cool neighborhood um, that I was super, that I was really glad to be able to explore a little bit. That sounds so cool. And it's kind of unbelievable to think that there are actually paths, if not actual roads, but paths that are kind of unmapped mm -hmm. still, you know, that they just in, in, in this world of satellites and Google Earth and everything that they're still kind of um, ways to get places that don't show up on a map. Absolutely. And yet it's in the middle of the city. I, I'm totally in love with that idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I was looking up um, the path we took on Google Earth and the latest street view I could get was from April of this year. And there were things that I definitely don't remember, um, that I remember from the walk that I couldn't see on the map. So I was like, wow, even in the last you know few months, things have been trodden. Um, you know, it's funny you bring up Tim and Eric uh, or Tim, <laughs> Tim Heidecker. Yeah, because I, I actually remember... Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mark Maron on his amazing podcast, WTF, was interviewing Tim and Eric. Um, whoever is not familiar with Tim and Eric, um, I hesitate to uh, suggest that you look at their work because you're either going to love it or you're going to be completely disgusted by it. But um, in my opinion, they're one of the most brilliant comedy duos of, of all time. But uh, anyways, um, one of the interesting things that came up was uh, Mark Maron commented that Mount Washington is always kind of uh, freaked him out because it's a pretty big neighborhood and, you know, on, up on a hill, but it's only accessible by one road. Mm. There's only one road that, that goes, I don't think that's actually true, but, um, but you know, I haven't spent a lot of time in Mount Washington, but there aren't too many. I think that he, he might've, for my, what I don't, I'm not exactly sure if there's only one road, but there are certainly no major roads. So the roads that go all the way up there, you know, if you lived in like the prime real estate at the peak, you wouldn't be able to get down the, the roads you would be going on would be quite narrow and you wouldn't be able to get down in a very quickly, in a very fast fashion. You'd have to kind of do a lot of switchbacks and most likely any other track that's trying to get up there is going to also intersect with you. So if, if you're, yeah, if, if that's a, a worrisome point for you and like, does that, you know, Los Angeles fires and earthquake and such, probably not the most uh, safe haven, but it is beautiful. Huh. So it's filled with just fearless Angelinos mm -hmm. willing to. Also, looking up some stats on it, it has like the highest percentage of unmarried men over 40 that have never been married um, thanks to the L.A. mapping project. <laughs> so there's some like some somewhat like, you know, whatever that tells you about the neighborhood. <laughs> brave bachelors. Wow. They're just brave bachelors that live up there and don't, Mountain you know, men. they say fire be damned. We're going to we're living up here. <laughs> That sounds so cool. Yeah, it was a lot Are of fun. You, yeah, that sounds very cool. Yeah, I love the idea of of uh, urban hiking Los Angeles. There's, uh, it, it seems like something that is not done as much as it should be. Yeah, especially in LA where there's so much land to traverse and so many places where the infill hasn't really happened yet. And it gets this weird hybrid 
urban natural wildness to it. Um, and the fact that we have rattlesnakes here <laughs> adds an extra level of, of yeah. excitement. And rabid coyotes. You can see wandering around the uh, the hills all over town. Mountain lions, all, all of that. It's all great. There was a bear walking down the driveway um, at our neighbor's house the other day. So, you know, you never know what you're going to come across. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. There was a, we had coverage on Arconnect not too long ago about some of these paths to the beach, the public paths to the beach that some people are trying to close. And, and um, there's a groups of people trying to make sure that people are aware that they are public and you're allowed to use them to get to the beach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're, are you referring to the, the, um, that mega rich guy in Santa Barbara that has yeah. taken that? There was just a ruling yeah. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was even previous to that, there was a, there was a topic on it, I thought. I think um, there's always been a lot of um, debate about that in LA, especially in Malibu, because the I believe the the uh, the property line is determined by the the high tide mark. So on when when the tide's low, you know a lot of a lot of people are, uh, or I guess even when when the tide's high, but um, you know the public often is using the uh, the beachfront property of. You know, multimillionaires who don't spend much time at their house anyways. And, you know, that's causing right. a lot of problems. Well, I don't believe in private ownership of beachfront no, property no. personally. Because I lived in Oregon for a long time where you can't own yeah, the beach. Yeah. So as far as I'm concerned, that's how it should be. I agree. So Donna, the um, the topic of mentorship that you, that you proposed we get started on um, within our community has really taken off. Yeah. I, um, and I think one of the interesting aspects about it, I started this forum, I I talked last week on the podcast about this, um, how disconcerted I was to hear someone, an architect, a pair of architects say they had never had mentors. Um, so I started this asking about that. And, um, I I think part of what's strange about mentorship in architecture is it's the notion of internship and, um, acting as basically an apprentice to an architect has been completely codified within our profession. But this notion of mentorship is very hard to pin down. And I think what came out in that discussion is a lot of people feeling like mentorship is some formal, uh, very corporate America arrangement where you identify someone who is your mentor and you have regular meetings. But then to me, it has always been more a matter of um, more experienced people who are willing to help me out, willing to share knowledge. And I have certainly have come to believe that we all should do that to the younger generation coming up. Um, You know, teaching professional practice as a practicing architect um, during the recession, during the worst parts of the recession, I really felt like I had to talk to these students at Ball State about um, how you could be a professional in this environment that was, you know, no one was hiring in late 2008, most of 2009. Um, And so I just had to start thinking about how can I be an honest mentor to these students and talk to them about our profession when it's in such disarray right now. Um, So, you know, I have always taken a very generous view towards it. And I think some posters have a very cynical view about, you know, maybe they never have been mentored or the people that have been inexperienced positions above them have not been willing to share. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know what anyone else got out of that whole discussion. Ken, do you have any thoughts about that? The the one question I did have for Donna is that at the University of Minnesota, they do a pretty good job of of getting, or at least uh, trying to pair up uh, profession, design professionals with um, students, architecture students, design students. Is that something that is uh, not done universally at schools, or 
I certainly never had that in school. And when I was teaching at Ball State, that was not part of the program. Now, locally, the AIA here is trying to reach out to the AIAS at Ball State more so that we can get more student and professional interaction. But my, in my, when I was under, in undergraduate school, I had most of my professors when I was in undergraduate school in the 80s um, were working professionals as well as professors. They were not strictly academics. And so they would tend to hire students for small projects. And that was how a lot of the mentorship that I engaged in happened. Um, I don't, I can't say, and this would be a good thing to get Leanne back to talk about how many um, teachers in architecture programs right now are also practicing professionals. Um, I think that's a really interesting question um, in terms of where the curriculum is going. Um, but I, yeah, my, my mentorship for me started in school and it was, it was totally informal. It was not something that was part of the program. And I have not seen outside of a program like the University of Cincinnati's co-op, I have not seen many programs where um, work experience really is worked into the curriculum deeply. Amelia, actually, when, when uh, you and I were talking with Michael Speaks um, prior to your Dean's List interview with him, the topic of uh, practicing um, teachers came up. What, have you noticed anything uh, of interest about, you know, how many, how many teachers are practicing architects at the schools that we've been um, looking at within the Dean's List feature? Hmm. Um, I would say that despite the fact that a lot of the deans we've talked to are very adamant about themselves having specific professional practice practices either going on at the same time that they're holding the deanship or head of school position or prior to that, um, no one has really specifically mentioned how they feel that goes with the, to their general faculty population other than um, Hernan Diaz Alonso, who we spoke to most recently for the Dean's List um, and who's we're going to feature pretty, um, it's coming up, our feature for him is coming up pretty soon. So he was very insistent that the faculty population not only be committed to teaching and mentoring students, but part of that mentorship was establishing a kind of um, a strong enough presence in practice that the student could also look to that as kind of a, a dual mentorship. So they're, they're your kind of informal mentor in the fact that they don't actually identify as the term mentor, but you, you're their student. So you look up to them as a faculty member, but then you also see them beyond in the world having this completely other uh, responsibility and you can kind of extrapolate a mentorship from that. And then that could even potentially grow into a explicit mentorship in that you intern with them or get a job with them after graduation. So um, in terms of other general, in terms of generalities around other schools, I would say that, yeah, it has been a topic that has come up um, that it's really important that the faculty population have a strong foothold in professional practice. I would tend to agree that way because my a lot of my interest lies in the area of practice. So that's just, just what I'm interested in. But I will say, speaking of, you brought up Michael Speaks, when he was at University of Kentucky, I know he um, had a program to get students into into offices for a week or two weeks or something. And, and many of them would um, travel. I know students from Kentucky were going to LA and working in Tom Main's office. And that was something that they were trying to integrate into the program that you would take your spring break or two weeks at spring break and go work in a firm um, usually some pretty, some really good firms because Michael was able to, um, to use his contacts, I think, to do that, to make that happen. Well, that's really interesting because it brings up something that is a larger topic that, um, Donna, you kind of mentioned it earlier when you mentioned that 
Indian, Indianapolis didn't want to hire an Indianapolis architect because they thought they were too boring. Right. <laughs> um, the concept of <laughs> right. local architecture, um, if Michael yeah. Speaks is, is pushing this uh, openness to have sending students across the country to go serve in other firms, um, what do you think about the concept of mentorship across different local or national even um, architecture traditions? Like, is there maybe untapped resources for that? Or is that something that that um, you've seen schools attempt to try to do explicitly? I don't know how often schools try to do it explicitly. I do know there are a lot of real go-getter students that try to do it explicitly. You know, there are, there are students out there that I have seen at, mid, at several Midwestern schools saying, I need to go get some experience on a coast in a big city in, you know, somewhere that's outside of my comfort zone, um, even in Europe. Um, and I think that actually kind of goes back to this this mentorship discussion that that students who we've had discussions on Arconnect many times about students who really push themselves in school to take advantage of everything they can. And those are the students that are going to find the professors that are going to be more willing to take them under the wing. Um, you know, I think it's been commonly said on Arconnect that school is what you make of it. If you're willing to put it, put a lot of energy into finding the best resources at your school finding the people who can connect you with architects in the field, finding the research people that are doing research that interests you and seeing if you can help out. But, um, you know, it is a two-way street. I mean, it's great to find someone who can help you, but you also need to be out there and be a bit of a go-getter, I think. Um, and I think for, you know, I feel like there has been a tradition um, among architects to to try to give younger people a help, a helping hand to to get some experience. I mean, I think we could quickly veer into the notion of unpaid internships, which does not make me happy. <laughs> um, I'm I'm completely against unpaid internships in any form, but um, but there is a value to the to the student or to the young person to being around people who who um, who have experience and who are working. I I think um, on the mentorship. Uh, thread, there was someone talked about um, wearing headphones at work. And that was a discussion years ago on Arconnect about, um, do you wear headphones at work or not? Well, if you're a young person working in an office, you really need to be listening to phone calls as much as you can, listening in on them, um, in my opinion, because you learn so much about how how your, your, the principals speak to um, clients and how project managers speak to um, uh, consultants. You learn all that stuff through listening um, at least I certainly did in an open office environment. So um, again, I think that goes back to this idea of really pushing yourself to try to learn as much as you can um, versus sort of going in and getting your work done and then going home at five o'clock. Um, you know, I think if, I think in our field, if you want to find a mentor, you can, um, but it might mean putting yourself into some somewhat uncomfortable situations of, of asking, saying, you know, hey, I want to learn more about this. How can I do that? I think Will mentioned, Will Galloway mentioned on the thread that um, he's not sure how it helps to bring a younger person in the office along to a client meeting. But I certainly sat through many client meetings where I just sat there quietly taking some notes and just listening, you know, just listening to the interaction. I think there's a great value in that. Yeah, there's a lot of value for the mentor to have a mentee if they're at all interested in maybe a long-term relationship with that mentee to the point of, you know, investing in someone who already works with you. So there might not be any obvious utility in inviting that young person into the client meeting, but it may make them feel more likely of, it might inspire them to work harder with you and bring you on. And, and I totally understand that there's a, <laughs> there's a quick, it's a quick jump to the unpaid internship discussion, but 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> but um, Ken, I believe you had something to add as well. Well, I, I was actually the one who was uh, bringing up the headphones part about on the thread. Um, okay, were you? I couldn't remember. I definitely had one headphone on, one headphone off. And when the conversation from a principal picked up, um, you know, because a lot of times it's in a, you're in an office, it's pretty a boring environment. You're kind of plugging away on your on your uh, on your AutoCAD details, and you're, there's not a whole lot going on. But when the conversation from a principal picks up, and you're starting to get the uh, an essence of something that's really important, you, I always put my headphones down and stood up and actually was, you know, doing as much eavesdropping as I could to try to understand tone, try to understand the context. And try to understand, you know, how do how do I speak to people, um, you know, when I become that uh, licensed professional. So those are always very good learning experiences. And one of the things I I've been I kick myself for for not doing when I was in school is I I think I always tried to get a job uh, during summer breaks is an architect's office and it never really worked out. And I kind of understood why. I mean. Um, what could I possibly contribute in in a six week period during the summer? Um, so the thought I, the one thing I uh, regretted was, and I tell students and I tell, um, young and well, students mostly, um, that it would have benefited me more, um, in terms of understanding construction. If I had volunteered or had gone to, uh, a general contractor or worked on a construction site, just doing menial stuff, being in the gopher, picking up, uh, bricks, moving around, uh, loads of concrete, or just, just being part of that environment to understand what the nature of materials were, how things got put together, you know, just by, you know, cause you can, you can absorb a lot just by being present in a situation that I think that being in an architect's office wouldn't have provided me. And, and I think I was, my skills lagged a lot uh, early on in my professional career uh, because of that. So that's one thing I, I tend to tell students is that, you know, you, don't worry about an architect's office. You'll get to an architect's office, but maybe look outside and try to understand um, and go to a construction site. And, you know, if you have to sweep up, start sweeping up and you'll just be around enough people who can put things together that you'll start understanding what's important, um, especially in, the, in, in as you go forward as an architect. One of the commenters in, in the uh, mentorship thread mentioned that his firm has a formal mentoring program. How many firms that you guys know of uh, have something like that? Is it common? Well, the, the firm I worked at first when I got to the Twin Cities, had they did have a two kind of mentors, uh, kinds of mentors. One was a social mentor, just kind of when you're in an office of 140 people, you kind of need to get uh, a feel of who, who everyone is. And so... There was one uh, individual who was kind of charged with that. And then you were kind of paired up with the project manager and one of the principals. So it was not as formal, I think, um, as one would expect. But I never really looked for a formal mentorship. I mean, I kind of just understood, um, you know, just being around the right people and asking a lot of questions and uh, not taking no for an answer. So... That's what you have to do. Yeah. My, my, you know, my understanding is that it's that larger firms really do tend to have much more formal intern development programs. Basically, they're really much more interested in bringing in an intern and having a, a defined path through which that intern will develop in their firm. Um, but I really have only seen that in larger firms. I'm um, I, meaning larger corporate, you know, 120, 100 
employees plus. And why do you think that is? Do you think that there's a motivation to to nurture these interns and provide mentorship? Um, because there's such a there's such a steady rate of turnaround in in the architecture industry. I think in a lot of ways, I think that it's larger firms basically have the um, they have the ability to commit to an intern for a summer or for a year and say we know we can afford to pay this person for that long and we know we can afford to keep them employed and therefore keep them learning. Um, and I, you know, in my experience in the larger firm I was in. They were very interested in um, in developing the good people and by basically buying their loyalty by treating them very well, teaching them a lot, you know, treating them well, acknowledging what they did well and and their successes, acknowledging their contribution to the firm. Um, I think that larger firms just have more of an ability to do that, whereas the smaller firms that I know of and that I was, you know, we just we couldn't commit to we we didn't know always two months out if we were going to have work. So, um, you know, I think that there is, again, talking to thinking about students going into summer positions or going into first jobs out of school. I, in my mind, sideways movement is a good thing. You know, try a firm for a year, see how it goes. And if you want to try doing something else, go ahead and do a, do a sideways, do a lateral move to a different position. I think when you're a young architect, there's a lot of time to make mistakes. There's a lot of time to try new things. Um, so I have encouraged people to do that. So, you know, give the big firm a try and see how they can develop you. And then, you know, usually the smaller firms are more baptism with fire. Um, but give that a try too. Well, I'm really glad that you brought this topic up because from the response from our community, it seems like mentorship is something that a lot of people don't even think about. So just the fact that, that, we're, that we're making people think about, about mentorship and how that may have affected their, their development uh, is important. And it's good, it's good to get people talking about it more. Yeah, I guess my final thought on it would be that there are, there are, let's acknowledge, there are some people that are just um, idiosyncratic and maybe even arrogant, and they do happen to be fantastic designers. And maybe they really can say, oh, you know, I figured it out on my own. Because I think there are some of those kinds of personalities in our profession. I mean, <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright, <laughs> for one. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, um, it's so rare. yeah, I, you know, it's a different, it's, it is rare, but it's a different path for everyone. Um, yeah. <laughs> Ken, you don't agree? Uh, <laughs> you just think arrogant people are arrogant? <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's that fine line between confidence and arrogance, right? I mean, um, I, I I looked at their designs and they're they're quite elegant, uh, they're stunning, but that didn't uh, come out of you know some um, Howard Rourkean kind of um, uh, mindset. Ugh. You know, it was born out of a lot of you know whether or not they want to fit, you know acknowledge the the people that they had uh, as professors as studio uh, studio professors as theory professors whether or not they want to see those people as mentors um, they is kind of you know absurd on it on its face because I can't imagine I would be the person I am today if I didn't have you know two very important professors in my life um, that uh, really kind of, change the trajectory of who I am as, as an architect, or even just how I think about architecture. I would have been so surface oriented, so, so just absolutely not interesting as a, as a person, if I had not had these two um, uh, design leaders in my school. So I can't imagine that they don't see, they didn't have those people because it, it just doesn't make any sense to me that you're not born with this innate 
gift, you have to nurture that gift. And it has to be kind of nurtured by someone who's telling you that, you know, these are, you know, there's value in what you're doing. There's value in your thinking. And, and I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> I think Paul's right. They are rare, those people. So even Frank Lloyd Wright still had Sullivan, right? I mean, he still had someone to bounce off of to kind of respond to. So even that's why I think was interesting about the thread is that, you know, the people that even the people I consider mentors, even though they weren't really great people to deal with, they weren't great people to work for. They showed me something about the profession that I wanted to keep in front of me at all times, that how I treat people is important, that I get paid for the, my work and that I've, that I take, you know, that I value what I do. And so those people, when they can be seen as a, a real kind of negative aspect and they, you know, I don't really think a lot about them, but they are present in my head. So they provided value to me. So those are, you know, I, I think we changed the, all we had, we, someone was posting on the thread that maybe it's how we look at what a mentor is, because I think, you know, there's IDP mentor. It's very specific. There's this person who signs off on your hours, but that's not the same. That's not the same thing. I think there's a little bit of confusion here in, in, in that, um, understanding. So, um, maybe that's I agree. changing the notion of what a mentor is, is probably, you know, apt. I don't want to get, um, into a big discussion about this, but I mean, does an architect need to have an, another architect as a mentor? I mean, can, can an architect have a mentor from a completely different industry? Ooh. <laughs> um, I actually, I, I have an opinion on that. It's completely un, unfounded as it may be. Um, so a lot of what this mentorship forum topic brought up was generational gaps, uh, mostly built around technological accessibility and that's something that really divides people's understanding of how how they're influenced, like whether they really felt like they pulled themselves up with their technological bootstraps or whether they really relied on one person to show them the ropes. And I think more and more now, um, people are teaching themselves the at least the technological tools for design to some expectation that they're actually um, that people actually have an expectation that they teach themselves that from the get go because schools might just not have the ability to do so. Um, as quickly as the technology is adapting. So I think that a lot of times the skills that are being used to learn those pro to learn those types of technologies could be accrued from other industries. Um, so an architect who is mentored by a filmmaker um, who specializes in computer design um, or computer animation might have actually learned a lot of the skills and kind of done a you know, a reverse out of the box feature where they started out something else and then they took those skills and figured out that they could apply them pretty cleanly to the architecture industry. Um, so I think that technology and its, uh, and its ability to become more and more self-motivated and learned by, you know, not by vacuum, but more or less like independently motivated has a huge role in, um, in uh, changing the mentorship discussion. And one of the other things that came up uh, again on the site and has been kind of a constantly developing uh, theme for a while is the role of licensure and specifically how licensure is being affected by changing technology. So um, what we had a re most recently on the site, Donna, I think you can talk about this a little bit as well, is um, a posting that Indiana was reconsidering its licensure laws um, for a bunch of different licensed professionals. And this comes in within the conversation of NCARB doing a bunch of um, potential revisions of its IDP program and also what it even calls intern architects. Is intern 
too much of a dirty word? Is it not appropriate? Is it simply outdated? Um, how can we meet and decide what the best word to call these fledgling architects is? Um, so that was one of the topics we were going to kind of really struggle with right on, on during this podcast. And um, in preparation, Donna and I spoke with um, a connection of Donna's, Haley Geip, who is involved with the um, internship revision. Maybe that's maybe that's what we should call it. It's not being specifically changed quite yet, but people at NCARB are reconsidering what interns should be called. So um, Donna, why don't you tell us a little bit about Haley Geip and how we got to talking with her? So this all this all this topic I could just go on and on about. Haley Geip and I met at the AIA Emerging Professional Summit last um, uh, January in Albuquerque, and we um, she was the we had the, the Emerging Professional Summit was a discussion of what is changing in our profession for emerging professionals and how can we make the profession better for them at this point, basically. Um, Haley was in charge of the licensure task force that was discussing licensure topics, and I was doing education. And then we also had, um, uh, uh, oh no, I'm forgetting the other two topics, but there were four, a total of four topics discussed by NCARB, AIA, ACSA, NAAB. All of us were present and discussing these things. Um, so Haley's topic of licensure ended up getting the most immediate traction. Um, and one of the things is the AIA did this intern title survey um, in which they interviewed 3,300 people about what they thought the title, what, what, what they thought emerging professional architects should be titled. Um, and I can go a little bit into that. It, 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 what was most interesting to me about it was um, uh, about 25% of people thought of the 3,300 people interviewed thought that um, associate architect was a good term and about 15% thought that intern architect was a good term, good term. And what was interesting was the older the respondent to the survey was, the more likely they were to think that intern architect was a good term. And the younger mm -hmm. they were, the more likely they were to think that associate architect was good. So to me, it means the younger people are saying, we are done with this word intern. We don't want anything to do with it anymore. Where the older people are saying, you know, it's not that bad. Come on. We, I was an intern. You can be an intern. Uh, you know, I, th I think there is a real generational shift there. Um, but Haley is now on the NCARB's future fight. I screw it up every time I say it. <laughs> future title task force. And they are 13 people that are getting together talking about, um, the future of titling in our profession. And I think it's important to point out, it's not just the, t the word intern they're taking on. They're taking on the whole question of how we title ourselves as a profession. And I think it could be possible. Um, and this to me ties into the argument, the, this notion in Indiana that they might abolish the licensing of architects. Um, it seems very possible to me that in coming years, we could see the title architect not be the legal term that it is now. It seems very possible to me that we could see um, architect being used much more generously um, to people that are doing other kinds of work even, but they have an accredited architecture degree. And then there's a different term like registered architect or licensed architect that becomes the term for someone who has passed the exams. Um, so the future title task force is talking about all of the titling across the entire profession, which I think is is. Uh, interesting. And we could see some interesting results come January when they when they put out their report. 
So what do you think were the main reasons why they felt this renaming process was, or potential renaming process had to happen now? What were some of the motivators? Well, um, frankly, a lot of it is, and so again, Leanne's uh, project, the Atlas project with the ACSA uh, is uncovering a lot of this. We're, we're really seeing a lot of young graduates of architecture school just go into other fields, just abandon the discipline entirely and go into other fields. Um, Paul, you were asking about being mentored by someone in another field. And I think that lots of architecture graduates are going into filmmaking or going into web design or going into these other areas. Um, one of the charts the ACSA put out shows that out of a survey that the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics, I think, did, um, they surveyed close to 10,000 people, maybe a little over 9,000 who used the word architect in some way in their job description. And most of those people were architects, but they were also in things like logistics or um, warehousing. Uh, yeah, like warehouse logistics and logistics of moving um, large amounts of, of goods, things like that. And the, the funny thing about the chart to me was that the lowest paid group was the architects. The people who graduated from architecture school and went into other fields tended to be making more money than the architects did. Um, again, just another really amazing um, uh, 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 chart that the ACSA Atlas project has put out. Ken, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Well, I think the um, the other thing to consider too is that one of the one of the things I looked at was uh, New York State uh, Architecture Board did a study about um, the time <clears throat> for licensure, how long it took someone to um, from graduating to uh, getting their license, and it showed something like um, I forget exactly the numbers, but uh, it t- it took um, architects or it took interns uh, to complete their licensing. Um, back in uh, 1980, uh, something like, on average, about five years or less to complete uh, their licensure. Now it's taking them, you know, over, in some cases, over 10 years. So when you start to see the, um, you've been spending this time in the profession five to 10 years and you still don't have a license, somehow calling yourself an intern doesn't really seem to kind of justify the time you put into the profession. So at some point you have to start asking yourself, am I really an intern? Now, part of it obviously is their fault and and they're to blame for not getting on the ball and getting the licensing done. But at at the same time, their experience is probably as uh, as good, if not better, than some people who are already licensed after three years. So to kind of give them, um, if it's a title change that kind of makes them feel good about where they are in their career and maybe they're not interested in getting licensed. There's a lot of engineers out there that are um, EITs for a long time. They don't see the need for being a professional engineer because they work for a firm where they have uh, someone else signing the drawings. So there really isn't a need for them to become a a licensed engineer. Um, So maybe that's part of what some of the thinking is, is that, you know, these students or these interns um, are still kind of laboring a bit and they feel like they need something to justify that. I think that's part of it. Definitely. I mean, I do think there are a lot of very experienced people who are not registered, but they have a lot of knowledge. They are demand, you know, they, they should get a lot of respect for being very knowledgeable. 
And for them to go to a, a, you know, to explain to someone else what I do and say I'm an intern, it just sounds wrong. I mean, I think we still, I still tend to really think of interns as being very young, especially being people that are still students, even that are in the working world, but they're still students that those that to me is what an intern is. Um, But then the other the other aspect to it to this, this notion of how long the licensing is taking is, um, you know, I think I think the big change happened when the um, when the test went electronic, when the test became not something that happened once a year, and everyone got together and did it. Um, suddenly it started to take a long time. And that's because there was no deadline. You can take those tests whenever you feel like signing up for them at the Prometric Center. And um, suddenly a real amount of community building around taking the test has disappeared from the profession. That was there when I graduated in the 1980s. It was still only offered once a year. Um, and everyone studied together and everyone got ready for it together and you all took it at the same time. Um, but so because you can now take it whenever you want, it has really translated to this very long, stretched out schedule for getting it done. Um, so I, NCARB has also brought about some changes in the IDP process that are pretty significant. There's, um, they're reducing the number of experience hours overall. They're um, um, reducing the amount of time to take retake a test that you fail. It used to be you had to wait six months and now it's only 60 days. So that's, that's going to help. Um, the test itself is being reformatted, and that might be something we can go into more later, but um, uh, the ARE itself is being reformatted, and they're, they're taking out the graphic design vignettes entirely. Um, and I think a lot of these are things that, again, older architects will tend to say, what do you mean you're taking a test and you're not doing a graphic vignette designing a building? But for younger architects or people like I'm an older architect, but I know a lot of younger architects, the... the, the um, the analytical skills and the skills that are required to do that kind of graphic vignette for a building um, are things that the computer can actually test very well. And I, you know, I think we need to sort of, in some ways we need to let go of this sense of tradition about how the test was done and just start to look at the metrics of how can we make sure we're, we're testing people on knowledge, certainly, but also not losing people because losing people from the profession because the testing process is so ridiculous and if you don't pass a test, you have to be called an intern, which just has a sort of, um, you know, not a, not a great quality to it. Um, I, I think, uh, Amelia, you asked about why is this happening now? And I think that these, this notion of losing people from the profession is a big part of why AIA and CARB are concerned about it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get the, the, definitely the impression that this is kind of a problem about that had that a lot of the problem has to do with the reputation of the term intern, which is not wholly the architect's problem or NCARB's problem, but they kind of have to bear the brunt of it. Um, Ken, did you want to add something to that? Well, one of the things that just kind of popped up on the website um, on the thread uh, regarding the uh, Indiana decision, or at least review of the the decisions to um, kind of take away some of the these licensure boards is. Apparently, there's a court case in front of the Supreme Court currently um, about teeth whitening, and it goes to what interesting. <laughs> what? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I had heard about this over the weekend, um, but it struck me. And and some of what I've been just reading right now, it seems to go to the heart of the issue about who is the the real issue here is whether or not a group of private. Uh, dentists who sit on a state board can then um, regulate who and who can and who cannot offer teeth whitening. 
because it's more expensive to um, for someone to go to a dentist to get teeth whitening. But apparently these teeth whitening shops are popping up in malls and providing the service for a lot less. So, wow. So the, that is an exact parallel. Yes. So this, <laughs> it is. This is ex- so the Supreme Court's deciding this, and it's really an interesting discussion about who who can uh, who has the power here. I mean, these are, and I, I understand the the different points of view, but I'm I'm concerned that this might obviously affect us as well because if this if the justices with this Supreme Court that we have right now decide this the way we kind of tend to think that they decide things, um, this could have ramifications across, um, across every, across every discipline from, and they even pointed out attorneys, doctors, um, just about everyone. Yeah. That, that seems like a really interesting parallel. Now the thing with Indiana, um, is that, that the, the state is going through, uh, license by license and analyzing basically what's the economic benefit to the state by licensing these people. So, Architecture is up tomorrow is when we have our hearing. Accountants went last Thursday. Architects go tomorrow. The dentists will be there too. So I wonder if this case about teeth whitening is going to um, come up when the dentists are in front of the review board saying, justifying why they should continue to be licensed. Yeah, apparently this has something <laughs> to do with antitrust laws, which again, I, I Oh, it's, it's pretty scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We need yeah. a legal consultant yeah. for our we podcast. Do. That do. would be so great. Um, yeah. But I think, but that's, Ken, that's fascinating. I'm so glad you brought, brought that up because there's also a, an interesting gap here in between um, not only how the changes get approved, but how they get um, actually enforced in the population. Because as Indiana is like going through right now, the, none of the things that NCARB is, are, is considering changing Will actually happen unless the states who have those regulations choose to enforce them. So, exactly. if there were, if it were ever to come to like a you know a federal court level with NCARB, which NCARB is obviously a national institution, but it's not it's not exactly the same thing as the Supreme Court. I'll just go out and say that. <laughs> um, but there is this interesting back and forth between the national institution, the national board, and state regulators. So um, that's, we'll keep that analogy going. I think that's really interesting. Does anyone have any other thoughts about the mentorship, or excuse me, about the um, licensure discussion or any other changes happening at NCARB or IDP or anything like that? Well, um, um, part of uh, what uh, we ta- we mentioned last week in the podcast was that, uh, Amelia, you had written this very interesting article that I thought was really well stated um, about the future title fa- task force. Um, and NCARB, I guess, had a couple of issues with ha- with your language or something. Um, but to, and I, I would actually like to hear you parse that out a little bit, maybe. But um, to me, NCARB has been throwing a bunch of announcements out lately about changes, and I think it's great. I'm I welcome all of these changes with open arms, and I think they're all good for the profession for the most part. Um, but I think that NCARB put out a a um, a statement about the um, potential for. Uh, licensure upon graduation from a school and from schools. Um, and there was sort of a huge outcry. People got upset that, oh, you're suddenly going to, you know, let a, a, a 22 year old with a bachelor of architecture degree design an airport, you know, and, which of course is not going to happen. <laughs> but, um, but I think NCARB kind of botched the announcement because what is at the root of all of this discussion is Every state makes its own decisions. Every state has a board and those boards decide 
what kind of accredited degree we're going to allow you to have to become an architect? What kind of, um, you know, what test even are we going to accept for our, to become a licensed architect? What's the process? It is all going to happen at the state level. So it's definitely when NCARB, AIA, and AAB, when, when they put out ideas and we all discuss them as professionals and think about, you know, and weigh in on what we, how we think it should happen, it ultimately is all going to come down to the states individually deciding what, what is best. Um, so it's a long, slow process. We can carry on and chat about it now as long as we want, but it is ultimately going to be a long, slow process to get any of these changes through. But Absolutely. so did you want to talk a little more, Amelia, about the... Um... Oh, sure. Um, I'll mention a little bit briefly, and I'd also like to say that um, Donna and I talked with Haley Guy um, shortly before this podcast about um, her role um, in the whole NCARB and AIA discussion of, of um, the future title task force. Uh, and so you can listen to that interview online. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. But Donna, specifically to respond to um, the article that I wrote announcing the changes to IDP that NCARB was considering, and I, I believe that was the announcement for um, their, the, for, specifically for the changes to IDP and also for the um, internship, or excuse me, for the intern title changing. Um, it was a really interesting process because, you know, we get press release, we get press releases all the time from a variety of institutions. And then rather than posting uh, press reports that we think are important directly to the news section, um, I think it's important that the information be swallowed, digested, and then regurgitated in an understandable way. Um, <laughs> yep. <laughs> but back onto the back to the architects back to the Archonnect audience. So um, it's really important to me as a journalist to not just give the information as it stands, even if that is um, also very helpful. We always try to link directly to the um, to the press releases, but not just always post exactly the same text. So when I was interpreting their text, they had a few specific pieces of language that either weren't precise enough for me or I interpreted them in a way that wasn't precise enough for NCARB that prompted them to post a response on the NCARB blog um, saying that, okay, there was this Arcanact um, news post that we have a few issues with, so we're just going to clarify a few things relating to the IDP revision. And my first reaction to that was like, oh, okay, but also, oh, that's awesome. At least something, there was this dialogue going back and forth of a news item came out. It was important we posted it to Archonnect and then NCARB responds, trying to make that issue more understandable to people. So in the end, it was all for good. Um, and I think it's important that people realize how uh, how much this news gets passed around before it really gets understood completely. And that, Donna, as you mentioned, you know, people are quick to react as like, oh, no, this means 21-year-olds are going to design stadiums. And of course, right. that's not actually what's going to happen. So right. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's definitely a topic that we will keep direct in touch with NCARB and we will be the best we can to um, to work as their kind of uh, direct access to a community that really cares about these issues and describe it in a way that is ex as, as accessible as po possible to everyone. So again, to me, going back to this idea that, that it used to be that everyone took the test at the same time, so you had this community that you knew were all doing the same, working on the same process you were. The fact that we have Archonnect now that you can put things like this out and we can all talk about it. Uh, you know, it gives us that, that again, gives us that community to be able to bounce ideas and to discuss things. Um, because these changes are coming. They are. And, um, some of them will be implemented smoothly and some won't be. And, um, you know, there's, there's talk of even bigger, bigger questions like, should we just have a national license that covers the entire United States? 
um, you know, that, that discussion might be coming. So keep your ears open, everyone, and read ArcConnect to, to find out. <laughs> Can I just have one last thing to say um, before we, yeah. we split off here? Um, I, I think I, I have to concur with Donna. I think NCARB has really kind of taken the bull by the horns here. And they've actually seemed like the younger organization where the AIA continually seems to be like the um, the Netscape version of of the, of, Burn. Yeah, it really, Burn. there's a, there's, a, and part of what my biggest a grudge um, against the AIA, and I can side with the interns on this one, is what's, I think, reason why interns are taking so long, okay, is I, to get their license, to complete their IDP, um, despite the six month rule, despite all of this kind of great reporting uh, documentation that's out there, is that, the, the code of ethics for the AIA really is not providing the carrot and the stick that it needs to provide. Um, if you just even look at a uh, rule 5.2, I mean, um, it says, let me just, I want to read this uh, just real quickly. Intern and professional development. Members should recognize and fulfill their obligation to nurture fellow professionals as they progress through all stages of their career. So it's a should. But the next one, Rule 5.201, says they shall um, – members who have agreed to work with individuals engaged in architectural internship or an experience requirement for a licensure shall reasonably assist in proper timely documentation in accordance with that program. So essentially, the, the hammer here is on reporting and signing that paperwork in a timely fashion where the hammer really should be on us as design as as architects is not on that part that's important but it really should be on making sure that the interns get the experience they need to complete the IDP i can't tell you how many people i've talked to who have said they've gone into gray areas of reporting because they don't if they work at let's say aecom or leo daily or some of these larger architecture firms what is the likelihood that they're ever going to see a contract it's pretty much nil. It's not going to happen. So if you spend your five years at AECOM, where, what, how, you're taking two steps forward and three steps back almost inevitably. So until AIA, who helped institute IDP, who's have, you know, worked with NCAR back in the late 1970s, until they change how um, that experience is, is given to um, or provided to interns, this is not going to really change a whole lot and it's going to be self-motivated and there's going to be a lot of horizontal movement and there's going to be a lot of turnover. So I think that's pretty important to state that AIA needs to get on the ball and they need to institute some changes to kind of come correct in the 21st century. It just needs to happen. I, I, I absolutely think you're right. And I do think AIA knows that. One of the topics that came up at the emerging professionals was um, the notion of teaching firms. And are there some firms that are specifically tasked with helping um, with with working on IDP, you know, with working to make sure that students can make that transition? I, I am not officially involved with the emerging professionals anymore formally, but I will continue to keep on top of these topics because they're very interesting to me. And um uh, I, I, you know, the way it relates to our entire profession is just really great. So just to close this out, um, yeah, I will keep on top of it. I know Amelia's also really interested in it. And um, we want to hear from people um, what their intern experience is. You know, we have this interview with Haley where she's going to talk about hers. Um, this will be an ongoing discussion, definitely, within uh, 
within our connect within the profession on the podcast, even in the future, I hope. So Paul, did you want to, well, just to, uh, to add to this discussion, um, Donna and Amelia, you guys had a conversation with Haley Guype that we're going to be posting in full on the show notes on, on, on the website. So if you'd like to listen to that conversation, go ahead to, uh, to our connect, uh, find the, uh, the, the news post about this episode and you'll be able to listen to that interview there. Um, Great. and then, so, yeah, so next up, you know, after you get licensed, you got it, you got to start <laughs> winning awards, right? <laughs> Which brings us. It's a natural progression, I think, isn't that's it? That's the next, yeah, the next step it on the, be. on the ladder. So, um, on that note, uh, we're moving on to our next subject, which is uh, on, on the weekend, on Saturday, on October 11th, there was a big gala event in Toronto to announce and award the winner of the inaugural 2014 Moriyama RAIC International Prize. And uh, we've, we've uh, brought up this prize in the past on Arconnect. For those of, for those of uh, the listeners that don't, aren't familiar with this, this prize, it's a, um, it's, a, it's a prize established by, um, by an, Arconnect, uh, an, an architect uh, by the name of um, Moriyama. Uh, the first name I, I, is not uh, coming to me right now. And the uh, Royal Architectural Institute of Canada. And the, the award is to, was established to raise the international stature of the Royal Architectural Institute of Canada and the work of Canadian architects. Um, interestingly, Moriyama actually first thought of this award way back in 1976 while he was on a three-month walk in, uh, in India and Nepal uh, following the footsteps of Buddha. So that's, that's some interesting, oh, wow. interesting history. So it's taken, it's taken a long time. It's taken almost 40 years to actually uh, be realized. Um, the, the award is to, um, it's, the prize is open to any architect or firm or collaboration in the entire world. It's not open to only uh, Canadians. And it's for, to award the, uh, to an outstanding building or project. Uh, there's no requirement in size or budget or program. And uh, the the winner gets a uh, hundred thousand dollar Canadian prize, which equals around ninety thousand U.S. and uh, and a sculpture designed by a Canadian designer named Wei Yu. This year, which is the first year of this award, as I said, um, the jurors included Brian McKay, Leon, uh, Patricia Patkow, Bing Tom, Maxima, Alexis Frappier, Barry Johns, and Edward Cullinan. And the winner, which was announced during the event, is. Uh, the totally amazing Li Wan Library uh, outside of Beijing. I, I love this project. We actually, I, I believe Arconnect was the very first publication to feature this, uh, this project right after it was completed in 2012. Uh, we, we featured it in a showcase, which we'll include the link to from the show notes. The, the building is really stunning. The context is amazing. It's a very, very simple and modest building. Um, very modern, uh, yet primitive, um, in its, in its use of material. So, um, but I think, you know, I, it may have been a surprise, um, due to the modesty and the size and, and the relatively tiny budget. But, um, Amelia had a, had a chance to talk to Terry about her experience at the event. So we're going to, we're going to listen to that. But before we go to that, do any of you have any, uh, have any thoughts on this award and, and the project that was that was awarded. So one thing that I would just like to point out is that the prize is for a hundred thousand Canadian. 
the construction budget for the winning um, for the winning piece was one hundred and eighty thousand. So I just think that's a wonderful statistic to throw out there to show the proportion of of how much the prize money stacked up to the modesty of the actual building. So, yeah, Ken, did you have something you want to add? No, I think I think um, Paul said it correctly, and so did you, uh, Amelia. And the mo- modesty of this building um, really kind of sets it apart from anything that you'd see in the Pritzker. I mean, it really. Um, it took me aback when I first looked at it because I couldn't believe that something, um, like you said, 185,000 Canadian and it won this major prize. Um, such very, and it really kind of, uh, kind of subsists in the landscape so perfectly that, um, in a lot of the photos, you almost don't even see it anymore. And to hear him to, or to read that his description, I think even Terry talked about it a little bit. Um, that the hope is over the long term that the kind of the landscape kind of just takes the building back and kind of really um, absorbs it into the landscape. So you really almost don't even ever see it. Um, something about that very uh, strikingly beautiful. Um, I think my only my only criticism of it was, and this is kind of interesting, in my Western mind. The first thing I started to look at uh, the building was who it excluded. <laughs> It's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting project and it's beautiful. But then I looked at it and go, there's no way anyone who has any disability can get into the building. It, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I know I, I think Stephen Ward and, and other people on the website have talked about universal um, universal design. And I thought about, wow, that's interesting. And and my understanding, um, again, my Western eyes, I wonder is is that not seen as something that's important in other parts of the world where here we're so bombarded with AI, um, ADA and um, and universal uh, design and, and, and all of that. And I kind of look at this building and it's striking for what it, who it excludes. Um, so I, I kind of thought about that when I was looking at, you know, the poetics of the building. And so that's one thing I took away from it. Not that that was completely important, but it was something that did strike me. That, that, see, I'm a terrible architect because I looked at it and was just completely taken away by how beautiful it is and the use of materiality, especially, and um, didn't even pay attention to the fact that you couldn't, there was no ramp. I, like, I, I would fail the ARE because <laughs> I didn't realize that you couldn't get into the building if you were in a wheelchair, using a wheelchair. Um, but it is a gorgeous, I mean, it's an, it's an amazing it's an amazing space. Phenomenologically, it's just so beautiful. And this prize to me is, I can't even get my head around it because it is so general, but I read something about its, um, the goal of it, the goal of the prize is basically just to make people dream a little bigger, right? Isn't that kind of what it was? Like we want to award something that will make Canadian architects and all architects just think, think a little just dream a little more, think a little more poetically, think a little more beautifully. That, that seems to be a pretty accurate translation of the prize. I haven't actually seen that, seen it described that way, but I think that that pretty much nails it on the head. <laughs> well, good. So, <laughs> well, so what do you guys think about that? Like, is that a, is that a good concept for such a, a big international award? Does it need to be more specific? <laughs> no, no, I, I think no. I think if you can, especially if something like this building can win, something very small and poetic. And um, this one also happened to have a very a strong community focus, right? It's about um, bringing books that you don't need anymore. And it's a community library, right? So you bring the books and 
if you're not reading them and leave them and take another one away, you know, it's not, it feels like a very grassroots um, community building. And I think that was also to me part of the thought behind why it deserved the prize. Amelia? So Donna, regarding that community aspect, when I was talking to Terry about her actually attending this gala and watching the award being given to Li Jiadong, she mentioned that in the presentation that the architect gave of the piece, he or of the building, he showed all these photos, you know, a few of like classic, you know, um, actual press photos and maybe some sections and such. But the final photo that he showed of the of the library was something he had gotten from a guy who just lived in that area where the library was and had snapped a quick photo of it, regardless of the prize, having no idea what was going on around it. But he was just like, oh, what a nice building, took a photo and then like posted it somewhere publicly. And the architect had managed to find this <laughs> and just put it up in his presentation. The photo itself was not like compositionally amazing or really even shed the building in the best light, but he was just like, oh, look, a person from the area actually felt it was a good idea to take a photo of this building. So I think that was one of the strongest things that came out about it. And regarding the the super general brief of it all, um, Paul, I think you kind of, you know, there's like a, there's a responsibility here for you to speak up about this because as a Canadian, what do you, th- <laughs> what do you think, what do you think this is saying about like, if it's coming from Canada and it's directed towards Canadian architects, but it's not necessarily only awarding Canadian architects or Canadian architecture, what do you think this has, what implications do you think this prize has for Canadian architecture in general? You know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. Um, I think that Terry addressed that issue a little better in, in the conversation that you had with her. So we can, um, we can kind of uh, refer more to what she, what her thoughts on that are. But, you know, as a Canadian um, who, <laughs> who, hasn't, who hasn't actually lived in Canada for a long time now, um, it, it's funny because when I, was, when I was 15 years old, I decided to create a, a calendar to sell on Canadian architecture. Because, you know, I, I wow. loved modern architecture. You know, I would, I would go to the local university because it was the only place that had, you know, journals and books on contemporary architecture. It was the only place I could find contemporary architecture. And I was so blown away by how much beautiful and amazing architecture exists in Canada by Canadian architects that nobody sees and nobody's even aware of. And I've always felt that, that Canada... Um, hasn't really respected uh, architecture or its architects as much as, as, as it could as a country. So, you know, anything that, that sheds more light on the architects and the architecture in Canada, even if it's just hosting an event in Canada hosted by a Canadian organization, that's, that's great. You know, I think that's a good start. Um, I know that Terry did mention in the, in, in the, the interview that you had with her that it's uh, it's impossible to really define what is Canadian architecture as uh, you know as you can with many other countries and that's very true and it would be nice to be able to uh, to do that um, so we'll see so why don't why don't we just go ahead and listen to your your talk cool okay. sounds good so this is um, me talking with Terry Peters who did our coverage for the prize awarding. So I'm here with Terry Peters, who reported for Archonnect on the recent RAIC International Prize um, awarded in Toronto. Um, I was wondering, Terry, why don't you tell us a little bit about the award ceremony? Well, it was um, one of the most 
interesting architectural events I've been to in a long time. It was really celebrating Canadian architecture in a way that uh, is quite unusual because it was an award about Canadian architecture, not for Canadian architecture. So I thought that was quite a, a unique take on it. Um, and it was um, an event held at the Aga Khan Museum, which is a brand new uh, museum just slightly north um, north of the city. And it was my first time to be inside the place. It's a beautiful uh, museum gallery designed by Fumihiko Maki with Moriyama Tashima, the local architects here. Uh, so it was it was an amazing event to be able to see so many Canadian architects out celebrating architecture and also to walk around a truly beautiful space. It was a, a really a great evening. Mm-hmm. So as the first of these prizes, and uh, how does that set the tone for what they're trying to push as uh, ideal or somehow aspi- Canadian architecture to aspire to? You mentioned it was not... Uh, for Canadian architects, but like of Canadian architecture? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think that was the debate was before the event, there was about an hour and a half of people sort of walking around, having a glass of wine, chatting. And people were questioning, like, who do you think will win? Or or what project do you think will win? Um, Will it be a Canadian um, project? Will it be, you know, a really conceptual project? Will it be an iconic new building? Will it be a small private house, what will it be? What, what, what represents, it's, it, it's a very open brief because it was, the, the prize was awarded to a building anywhere, uh, any program done by an architect or a designer. No, uh, no restraints really, except it had to have been in use for two years. So there's a lot of speculating. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's, that's like, an amazingly open brief. That's incredible. <laughs> I, I know, and, and we were, I am, I was kind of wondering, like, is this how we begin a discussion as Canadians about what is Canadian architecture? Because I, I don't know, it, it feels to me like nobody wants to say, oh, Canadian architecture is this, or it isn't this, because, you know, no one likes to generalize to that extent. But yet, um, you often find discussions in other parts of the world. Like, for example, I just moved from Denmark. I've been living there for many years. So uh, I often heard people talk about Danish architecture. Scandinavian architecture, Swedish architecture. Nobody was offended or anything. You know, you could talk sort of about what ideals were were held in in these different things. But in Canada, no, I, I get the feeling that you have to go, you have to approach it sideways, sort of, to say uh, some of these concepts are more important here, maybe, than other places. But then when you award it to a, a, a library in China, I, I don't know. It had a very interesting. Um, it generated a lot of debate and discussion afterwards. And I think that's really important. That's probably the most important aspect. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about why you think this project in particular, uh, well, first of all, maybe start out by describing in general terms, what kind of building this is um, that the prize was awarded to and why it was a bit controversial in the awarding. Well, I think one of the reasons why it was controversial is that it's a very small building. Um, It's about 175 square meters. So it's just like a big room uh, with a few smaller spaces, but it's very open plan, uh, simple form. It's just a rectangular building. Um, And it had a budget of $185,000. So that's pretty controversial right there. I mean, an architecture prize, I can't think of any prizes given to a building so small and and so inexpensive, unless that's the point of the award, 
you know, like in the UK, they have the, the AJ small buildings prize or small projects prize where that's specifically about small and expensive buildings here. It could have been anything. So I think people were pretty floored that a, a modest, small building, although it's very beautiful, could win this award, but maybe that's also very inspiring. I mean, it is to me personally, you can find uh, good architecture anywhere, really. It's just in how it's treated and, and how, how you work with the brief. Um, mm-hmm. but the, the, the project itself is, is truly beautiful. It's, you can it cannot be argued with. I mean, it's, uh, I'd actually seen it published before, uh, like when I saw that it won, I thought, oh, that looks familiar. And I went through on the internet and thought, yes, I've seen this, this project. Um, it's, yeah, as I said, it's two years old, so it's not a brand new, um, building and it's a, like a glazed rectangular volume in this beautiful mountainous landscape and it's about five minutes from a small village of about 300 people. And when the architect was on the site, he he kind of explained that the local material were these, these very thin twigs. And so he thought about cladding the building in this local material and using it in a very precise way. So it doesn't look like the building's covered in twigs. It looks like these horizontal bands of very fine, arranged, uh, vertical small components that sort of filter the light in. Um, and it's not something you would immediately say, oh, that's a sustainable building because it's a glazed box. And it's someone uh, at the awards event said it's a Swiss box. And then we all discussed, is it, you know, <laughs> um, it's, it's not really a, it's not really a, an object building, but in a way it is. And in a way it isn't. And that was one of the things that, uh, after the announcement, the jury, uh, the chair of the jury, Barry Johns, was saying we had a lot of submissions that were object buildings and, and this is not an object building. So I think that was a debate that that could be had. Um, mm-hmm. You referenced in your write-up the term modest and it's, yes. it's hard not to look at the images because I haven't had the luxury of being able to actually see the building. But looking at these images, it's it barely, it, it, it does a beautiful job of being natural in the landscape to the point where it, it it's trying not to be noticed almost. Um, and definitely a lot of prizes are not really looking out for that. They're looking for something more expressive um, or usually that's how it comes off. Uh, so what do you think in the kind of predicting the history and how this prize will develop? How do you think it will compare to other prizes like the Pritzker? I think that this prize, because of the way the brief was given to the jury, like it was sort of I think he said it was looking for humanistic values in architecture. And I think he, yes, he said it was furthering humanistic values of justice, respect, equality, and inclusiveness. So that's a very open brief again. I, <laughs> I mean, but, but one interesting thing that you just mentioned about it sort of trying to conceal itself or not stand out. Um, we, we received a little package um, of drawings that were submitted by the, uh, the winning entry. And there was a very interesting drawing that showed the the building as the the facade as it was completed and then in one year and then in two years and then in the future and showing how in time it was hoped that this building uh, became sort of reclaimed by its environment in a way like green starts to grow on the twigs on the panels. Um, he, he sort of photographed it in a way that shows um it really being a part of its environment, really blending in. And I don't think that would be a normal submission 
in, for example, the Pritzker Prize or the Sterling Prize or something like that. You'd, I mean, maybe that will change, but that sort of approach to fitting into the context or, or even going further and sort of fading into it or, or something like this. And, and um, another sort of related thing is the last photo that the architect showed, he is his a sort of heroic image to leave us with. Um, he said that it was taken by a, a local farmer. Uh, it, it was just a normal looking photograph. It, it didn't look like <laughs> it didn't look like he'd sent a team of architectural photographers to take the the final image of his slide while he collects one hundred thousand dollars. You know, it was it was very modest, and it was like this is actually what it would look like if you went there. And you know, it, I, I thought that was quite telling of his approach. Or that's amazing. That's really interesting. He, like he crowdsourced the uh, <laughs> the photograph. So just to clarify one more thing, the budget, the construction budget for this project was 185,000 Canadian uh, Canadian dollars. Yep. And the prize was 100,000 Canadian dollars. (laughs) Yep. That's right. So that's a pretty remarkable percentage or not. (laughs) Um, I think that's, that's a great, uh, (laughs) if we can keep all prizes with that proportion, that would be amazing. Exactly. Um, So just as one final question, um, there's another part of this prize that is pretty interesting, that it, it also includes students' uh, scholarships sponsored by the financial group that is also in charge of the prize. Um, I was wondering, do you know anything about how the scholarship uh, became a part of the prize and what the intention is around there? I He did mention uh, in the beginning of the presentation of the awards, uh, Raymond Moriyama was saying that this this whole concept of the award for the building and the award for the students is about the future. It's about what's the future of Canada, uh, how or what's the future of architecture, but specifically nurturing it in a Canadian context. And he said that a big part of that would therefore be uh, students uh, nurturing more aspirational, more ambitious student work. And I thought it was interesting that then the submission was an essay because... Uh, not all architects like to write. I, I love to write, but <laughs> but I thought, I wonder if that was a, a hard thing for them to articulate why they wanted to be an architect without drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but a, funny, uh, a funny thing that he said is that they had 150 entries for this uh, student scholarship, one from every school in Canada, 11 accredited schools. And then later on, he said that there were only entries from nine countries for the $100,000 prize. Oh yeah, I can see in your write-up here, you mentioned there were no entries from the US, Scandinavia. Um, <laughs> a lot of like, and, and first, you know, 150 doesn't really sound like so many entries for what is ostensibly a pretty major prize. Um, and, you know, $5,000 isn't, you know, isn't, not, isn't anything to scoff at necessarily. So that is that is very interesting and might, might simply have to do more with the prizes like relative newness and it's not so established quite yet, but that is very interesting. Yeah. I wonder if there were 150 um, entries for the main prize. I mean, they, they wouldn't tell us we were, <laughs> we were all, <laughs> we were all wondering uh, because. So there were no runner, were there any um, uh, second place or announcements of other placements in the prize? No. And, and as we were walking around the, the reception afterwards, um, uh, I was talking to a few different people, trying to get names out of them. Like, did you apply? (laughs) (laughs) Did you send in any entries? Why not next year? You know, Uh, because I think this is how we raise the 
level of, I mean, it's obviously how we raise the level of debate about architecture. As soon as you bring this amount of money into it, everybody's really willing to uh, spend the time to put together a submission that considers these these topics. I mean, it's it's probably, it's definitely the richest Canadian architecture prize and it's one of the richest in the world. I mean, it's certainly up there with the other big name architecture prizes like the Pritzker and the Sterling and uh, the Wholesome Awards. Wow. Well, we're super interested to see how this will develop, especially as a Canadian um, entity, based on what you were saying before, how it's hard to point to exactly something that is Canadian architecture. So we'll definitely keep tabs on this. Thanks so much for joining us and um, giving your account from attending the award ceremony. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. So um, I guess now we can move on to uh, wrapping this up. This has been a pretty long episode. It's already been almost an hour and a half. So. Partly um, my fault. What do you? What, <laughs> no, it's not your fault. It's, it's my fault. <laughs> it's nobody's fault. <laughs> Actually, no, it's Donna's fault because she doesn't have yoga tonight. It is. Yeah, well, yeah, and I talked. I just talked too much. What do you guys that. think about the about the length? There were a couple comments from last week that um, that it was a little long. Um, personally, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put in my two cents first. Um, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and um, the kind of format that we have. Um, I actually kind of like the long podcast because it gives me an opportunity to, to fast forward through parts that aren't as interesting. Um, I usually listen to podcasts when I'm in the car and I live in LA, so I'm in the car a lot. So longer podcasts are okay. You know, if you're in a location where you don't commute as much or don't have an opportunity to listen, uh, you know, maybe they're too long. What do you guys think? The, uh, the length is not a problem for me. Um, I listen to Marin's podcast. I've listened to Arca speak. I've listened to, um, various other podcasts and something about the long format seems much more interesting to me. And I'm much more engaged rather than listening to like 15 minutes of the moth. Um, I really like to, especially at work, I'm sitting down and, and I'm, uh, need to fill up that day. And if the length doesn't bother me, I think it'll, you know, I keep telling people, give it time. This thing, this, this experiment will tighten up. Um, we'll get a little bit better about how we, um, present the information. I know I'll get better at not, uh, forgetting things and, uh, you know, explaining myself a little bit better. So I, I, I don't think that there's a problem with the length. I, I agree. I mean, my attitude is that the, the longer the podcast, the more drafting I get done. So it, <laughs> yeah, keep it long, keep, make it eight hours. I'll get a whole work day in. Okay. So, but I do think I do, I do listen to a lot of podcasts that tend to be like an hour and 20 and I feel like, um, people shoot for an hour and then you just get to talking about the things you want to talk about and it goes over. That's just how it goes. So I, I have no problem with it. Well, the nice thing about podcasting is that, you know, we're not restricted to a half an hour or an hour. We can make as long as we want so we can cut it or, uh, keep on talking, whatever we feel is, uh, is right. There's going to be some weeks that we probably won't have much to say and that's okay. True. So, um, you know, doing the podcast, Paul, is compensation enough. You know, I'm I'm having so much fun doing this. I, I can't imagine doing anything else with my hour and a half. Absolutely. <laughs> totally agree. Awesome. Well, you know, the podcast. Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a pretty consistent theme among uh, a lot of the podcasts I listen to is that uh, people seem to have fun doing it. And so far I'm having fun. So hopefully this, this uh, keeps on being fun. It will. So let's let's get this wrapped up. So I, I so thinking forward, I heard a rumor somewhere, and I think I read this on Twitter, and I don't know that we've seen it on Arconnect yet. 
um, that Tom Main recently was interviewed and said something about how, why should I ask a client about aesthetics? I'm the one who does aesthetics. And I, I, I'm going to dig a little and see if I can find where this came from in case it hasn't been on our connect. Because <laughs> that, to me, I completely sympathize with that attitude. But on the other hand, of course, I completely disagree with it. So it'll be, yeah, yeah. I'm going to see if I can find that. Yeah, Donna, please scoop us that. Please. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. So that's my looking forward to next week. That's, that's going to cool. be a good one. Yeah. Ken, do you have anything to endorse this time around or something you're looking forward to? You know, the the one thing that just came up today, um, and I'm not sure if it's a news, it's a news item that just blew my mind. And I'm still trying to digest what is actually going on at SciArc. Um, they're creating brothel childcare centers. So, and, what? <laughs> yeah, well, and a vertical studio. And I, I actually, I, I like the idea of this really kind of pushing the envelope and about what architecture um, means and what it can mean. And I, I'm, I'm curious to see how this is handled. Well, Ken, Ken, you're going to learn more about SciArc this week because uh, probably on Friday, Amelia's uh, interview with Hernan Diaz-Alonso, the incoming dean next year at SciArc, is okay. going to be going up probably on Friday, huh, Amelia? Yeah. Yeah. If maybe, <laughs> maybe even a little yeah. bit earlier. Although, Ken, I also watched that video on the news and I don't know if, if Hernan, what, if what Hernan has to say will at all clarify any of <laughs> but, but I was, I was really, I was definitely excited to, uh, <laughs> to view that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the other things I'm, I'm trying to, um, for the lack of a better word, and this is kind of an interesting transition, I'm trying to pimp my own town <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you should. So I, I, um, I put up two, um, I saw two news items go up about a creative city challenge in Minnesota that they've been doing this now for the past couple of years where, um, they invite, comp uh, they hold a competition and invite design professionals to create an installation near the, um, near the, uh, convention center here, um, and for the summer. And it's usually connected with, um, really public, uh, experience and technology. So that's, uh, that's a competition that's going on currently, um, in Minneapolis. Um, I think the deadline for that is, uh, first of November, uh, first of December. And then the, the last thing, uh, I could talk about, um, is, um, another little, um, a project with Northern Lights, Minnesota. It's called uh, Ruination. It's uh, City of Dust. It's a uh, it's it's gaming uh, using game theory to kind of uh, think about the uh, urban landscape in the Twin Cities. And uh, one of my favorite non-architects out there uh, who really gets me thinking about um, game theory is uh, Jane McConnell. Um, so they have a good quote from her about the project. So I thought that would be another thing to that I'm looking forward to seeing if anyone um, gets geeked about. So cool. You got to talk about your town. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. One thing that, uh, that I think might be a topic to talk about next week that I actually noticed being posted and commented on while we were talking today uh, on this podcast Ooh. was that uh, Nicholas just posted news that Honolulu has just uh, criminalized homelessness. And, uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, immediately, uh, G Wharton immediately responded, uh, good. It's about time. Um, and then, uh, Miles Jaffe or Jaff, uh, uh, commented at him saying, you know, uh, great idea. Let's put them in, in jail and have the taxpayers pay for it rather than 
building rather than building, you know, uh, inexpensive housing. Um, so I think that the issue of homelessness is very divided. Uh, that this this might kickstart a whole discussion about it. So maybe this is something we're going to be talking about next week. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, there's a lot to talk about there. <laughs> Brothels and homelessness. Oh my goodness, Honolulu! They were doing so well with their urban design stuff and the great mayor. What happened? What 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 happened? Oh, oh yikes! Yeah. So I have just one other little endorsement or comment that I wanted to make, um, and that's and I have no idea how to pronounce this, but it's Zaha Hadid's new proposed building in um, Cambodia, the Sluakrit Institute. Mm-hmm. Sluakrit. No idea how to pronounce it. Just I feel a little connection to this because my husband spent three weeks in Cambodia last year and um, we have uh, are very good friends with a Cambodian artist. He was trained in the United States but lives in Cambodia named Sapiep Pick and Sapiep did a big installation here at the IMA that we managed. Um, uh, and um, so I feel, you know, my husband has spent a lot of time there in the culture and, and living and working. He was actually working on a, on a project with Sapiep. Um, and I showed him, he's an artist, I showed him the proposal by Zaha for this institute, which is to me, a beautiful building. Um, I think it's. I think it's beautiful, and I think one of what's one thing that's so beautiful about it, about it is how ordered it is. That you know, as compared to much of Zaha's work and a lot of parametric work, this is just completely ordered um, in a way that's just beautiful and looks just translucent and um, like it's it's going to be amazing. Paul, did you want to yeah, say I something? I agree. I mean, if I if someone had told me that Zaha Hadid was going to be building a museum in Cambodia. You know, I would have rolled my eyes, but I think that I think yeah. that this, from what from what we've seen in the renderings, it's a pretty stunning building that um, it is that seems to work. And I, it, the the feedback on Arconnect among readers who normally would you know uh, pounce at the opportunity to uh, talk shit about Zaha um, has been has yeah. been very positive as well. So I, I think this this looks promising. But again, you know, as somebody noted, um, it's hard to judge a building just by looking at a an image. So we'll see, we'll see what, how, what this turns into. But the, re- the renderings are promising, very promising. Um, but I think one of the, the comments I've read on other sites as well as Archonnect, I think people have brought up this idea that Cambodia is still an extremely poor country. There are extremely, extremely. poor, horrifically poor people. Most people can't there. even afford a, a refrigerator. A friend of mine recently did right. a lot of work in right. Cambodia and, you know, people had to eat everything fresh because nobody could afford to keep their right. so I mean, but it's also from what I've heard, an extremely, extremely nice country. The people are 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 really beautiful. Um, Absolutely. So it's uh, it's nice to see a project. So there's this question of you know should we be spending the whatever million dollars on a building when the people are are you know can't even have shoes or or have refrigerators? Yeah. Um, and I it, it to me it, it it I certainly think that should be talked about. But one of the things that, that this is a quote from my artist friend, Sean Starowitz, which is um, culture is not a dessert. It's a protein that you need to have culture mm-hmm. in your society. You know, oh, I like that. so mm-hmm. that's a that's sort of my that's the tact I'm tending towards on this project is is yes, we need to make sure people can live and eat and have shoes and have refrigerators. Um, but to have a society, you have to have culture. That's a good, good point. Yeah, hopefully it won't, it won't, the building won't come across as pretentious. You know, um, I, I, they just need to be careful about it, but it, it, it seems like a really nice gift for the country, I guess you could say. It does. Yeah. It does. Because it is a country that has a lot to, of very painful memories. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we'll see. So Zaha seemed to have done a good one here. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Amelia, any final thoughts, endorsements? I would just like to continue this 
uh, stick horse that I've already made for myself of <laughs> parking on neuroscience resort research. Yeah. Um, because effect, you could make the argument that architecture made headway into a Nobel Prize territory. <laughs> Definitely. Um, we recently reported uh, about the um, 2014 winners of the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology for these Norwegian researchers and this, um, I think, American researcher, um, three neuroscientists who won the Nobel for their research around um, navigation in the brain, how we navigate spaces and how we conceive of space um, in terms of our own neurological anatomy where they were actually able to isolate cells in the hippocampus of the brain um, that show you, or not that show you, but cells that identify to um, the, <laughs> see, this is why I don't get the Nobel Prize in medicine is because it's hard to, hard for me to explain it, but um, basically cells that help us find our way and help us determine how we are in a space. Um, so this obviously has huge implications for the neuroscience community, but also for architects and how how space is designed and how we can help people get around effectively. Um, so there's a news post on that from uh, sometime late last week, I believe. And what was also fascinating about it was that one of the presenters at the uh, Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture conference that I recently attended, um, one of the researchers there had presented a paper that was on this topic directly because she had done research with the Nobel Prize winners previously in her career. So there was like a direct overlap between the research being presented at the architecture and neuroscience conference and the stuff that actually won the Nobel. So I thought that was really cool. Um, people at the conference were like later laughing, like, oh yeah, we totally predicted that they would win the Nobel. It was like the <laughs> ANFA bump or something. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I doubt that had something to do with it, but it's really fascinating just to see how these things are consistently overlapping. Ken, did you have something you wanted to respond to that? No, I, um, yeah, actually I did. I, um, as someone who suffered from uh, seizures as a, a, um, as a young person um, and who's gone through the EEG process, I've always been trying to figure out, is there a way to map out um, space um, through EEGs, creating three-dimensional space from the EEGs? So I have, I'm going to dig deeper into this one because it has it resonates personally with me. Um, so... Uh, thanks for posting that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good article. It's a good article and it's, it is hard to kind of hard to understand, but, um, that's cool, Ken, that you feel like you can relate it to something very specific Yeah. in how you design and how you think yeah. about the world. <laughs> very cool. Paul, do you have anything you want to endorse for this week? Well, my, uh, no, my, I, 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 I have a <laughs> prediction about the homelessness and that's about it. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh think, yeah. Oof. We're going to have to talk about that one. I think we should wrap this up. I think it's been a good, it's a, it's been a good, good talk. And it's been a long, long conversation. Meaty. Mm. Lots Actually, to Actually, it's about. been so long that I am, if, if five people send me their email address, I'm going to send them t-shirts because we got a lot of t-shirts here. So I just want to, <laughs> I want to see if people actually have, have lasted this long. And I would, I will gladly send uh, some shirts. We, we haven't been advertising the shirts in ages because they're all the same design and we don't really want to milk that for much longer but um yeah you know just just a little gift for those of you that stuck with us we uh we love all righty five lucky people yeah oh and you know something that we didn't mention last time um you can follow us on uh facebook.com uh, forward slash rconnect twitter.com forward slash rconnect also you know um if you have if you're on twitter and you use twitter a lot which a lot of people do these days you know, just uh, tweet us at Arconnect if you have any comments about the podcast or if you want us to talk about something on the podcast or if you, 
even if you'd like to maybe, you know, uh, talk with us on the podcast sometime. Um, but uh, definitely stay in touch. We we pay attention to every bit of feedback and and uh, and commentary. And we're actually finally listed on iTunes. There was a technical glitch on Apple's side, which was finally resolved today. So you can find this podcast on iTunes by searching. Um, you can also go to the podcast directly from from Arconnect. We have a link that goes straight to the podcast. And now that we're on iTunes, we would really love it if uh, if you if you do enjoy the podcast to give us a good review, give us five out of five, <laughs> get us you know get us up there and uh, get get this podcast seen by more by more architects. Paul, does it cost anyone to give a review? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't. Re- I this can't is not resist. about money. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> free to review, free to listen. It will it will cost them if their review is bad. Ooh, ooh. But will my dog like and it? And it's not a not a monetary. <laughs> it's cost. not a monetary cost. It's no, we, uh, <laughs> yes, the karma cost. cost. <laughs> All right, yeah. guys. I gar- I guarantee everyone my dog will like this podcast. <laughs> oh, absolutely, Mac. Next week, all, all dogs. dogs. Well, thanks so much, everybody. All right, guys, I got to go. Good talking to you all. There's so much to talk about. We could go on and on, but uh, we'll do it next week. Yes, until next week. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Donna. Uh, thanks. thanks, bye. Ken. Bye.